0: May we pray together. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we simply ask that you will be the one who will open it up to us. Lord, that uh, you will cause our hearts, our minds, our spirits to engage with all that you are wanting to reveal to us through this, your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, we began to look at the two men in the Bible who are specifically given that amazing title, Friend of God. We started with Abraham and thought about what the Lord is looking for in his friends. This time we move on to consider Moses and to see more of how God works in the lives of of his friends. But we need to paint in a bit of background. Last time we saw how God established a covenant relationship with his friend Abraham and through him with his descendants, the, the people who became known as the Hebrews. But these covenant people hadn't pressed in on God's promise of inheriting the land. Indeed, when a famine arose in Canaan, the land that they were intended to possess, they took flight and went to Egypt because there was corn to be found there. As we read the Old Testament, it becomes apparent that this in itself was a marvellous provision of God for his people. For the Lord had placed Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, there by a rather tortuous route that we won't go into in detail, Joseph had become prime minister of Egypt, put there by God in order to see that his people did not perish in this widespread famine. In fact, the Lord's provision is a recurring motif in his dealings with his people, and we'll return to it again and again. But Joseph, his brothers, and their families remained in Egypt even once the famine was ended. Indeed, their descendants stayed there 430 years. They thrived, and in their comfort they forgot the covenant, and they forgot God's purposes for them. But eventually a new regime arose in Egypt, who knew nothing of Joseph and of his contribution to Egypt's affluence. And so the Hebrews' prosperity was replaced by persecution. Egypt oppressed and enslaved them. And it's within that context that we're introduced to Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Because the Hebrew population had increased exponentially, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, feared that they posed a threat to the security of his nations from within their own borders. And when all of his other attempts to stop them thriving had failed, the Egyptian despot embarked on a policy of genocide against Abraham's descendants, ordering the Hebrew midwives to kill all male babies at birth. However, Moses' parents hid their newborn son, in a waterproof basket amongst the bulrushes in the river Nile, at a point where they knew that an Egyptian princess regularly bathed. Watched over by his mother, Jochebed, the princess indeed drew this little boy out of the water and adopted him, and asked his own mother, who was pretending to be a nurse, What shall we call this little Hebrew baby that I drew out of the water? Jochebed replied, In our language, the word for draw out is Masha, And this is like your Egyptian word, moshe. Pharaoh's daughter responded, Why, of course, and that's our word for son. So as I'm adopting him, we'll call him that. So Moshe became his name, although in English we use the, the, the Greek form of his name with which we're all familiar, Moses. And that princess, by the way, also hired Moses' own mother to be his wet nurse. However, the events that we're going to look at together were still several decades in the future at this juncture. But it's important to understand that the Lord is still looking to the future of a people, his people, who had forgotten that they had settled for something far less than God's calling on their lives. So the Hebrews had forgotten their covenant relationship with God, but the Lord hadn't. However, he did allow their situation to get so bad that it would bring them to their senses and back to him reminding them of who they were and who he is and of their absolute need of him. So often, that's the way the Lord deals with his people when their testimony is, is more like a, a wistful memory of how things used to be and indeed how things should be rather than a vital and present reality. I suppose it's really a case of being cruel to be kind. And I would say that during one particularly challenging time in my own life, I had a taste of what that's like. And whilst the experience was really tough, it certainly reminded me of who I am, who He is, and how much I needed Him. The comforting thing for us to see here as being typical of the Lord's grace is that when the people of God turned back to him and called out to him, he acted to save them. And so often in the Bible, God's way of acting is to choose his own man and to send him in. And in Exodus chapters 3 through 7, we have those chapters where God deals with the one he has chosen, Moses the man who becomes the friend of God. However, this man Moses is shown in these chapters to be a most fluctuating person. He's up and he's down. He's up and he's down. In chapters 3 and 4, we see his great uncertainties. He doesn't know whether he'll be able to go. After all, who is he to go? He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't think they'll listen to him. And if push comes to shove... He doesn't even know how to speak. Utterly uncertain. But in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1, you really wouldn't think that there was anything uncertain about him at all. Moses and Aaron went marching in to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. No one had spoken to Pharaoh like that, ever. And Moses was as quickly down as he was up. Moses turned again to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? How erratic. First uncertain, then buoyant then down in the depths of despair again. The only stable thing in these chapters is the will of God. There's utter instability at the human end. The only unchanging thing is God's purpose that this man shall be his servant and his instrument in bringing his people out. Now let me ask you, When God wants someone to serve him, what's the first thing he does for them? What's the first thing he gives them? We saw it with Abraham last time. It's the Lord's self-disclosure, his revelation of himself. The angel of the Lord appeared, showed himself, would actually be another, maybe better translation, God's first move is one of revelation. And it's specifically revelation of himself. Notice that later God will show Moses the need of the people in verse 7. I've seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. But that comes later. Even later still in verse 9. The Lord will reveal to Moses his mission in life. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them, so come, I will send you. But you see, Moses' career in Egypt is based on neither his awareness of the needs of the people, nor on a strong sense of destiny. And that's because before either of these pieces fell into place, the basic thing is that God revealed himself to Moses. God's first move towards his servants is always to show himself or more of himself to them. Putting it the other way around, the first need of anyone who'd serve the Lord is to know the Lord That's the point of God's self-disclosure, that we should know him. You know, so many have ended up disillusioned in ministry because they've responded to an observed need in the world or the church. Still others have felt that they really had to do something to build their own sense of of achievement or destiny or self-worth. But neither burden, neither response will see anyone through when facing the tough demands of frontline ministry. If they've not first got to know the Lord intimately as he reveals himself to them. Okay, moving on. We need to understand the significance of the the oft-told story included in our reading Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming closer to take a further look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here am I, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Now clearly, the first thing we see is the Lord showing himself as the holy one, the unapproachable one. But actually that's neither the only, nor indeed the most important aspect of the Lord's self-disclosure here. There are three parts to God's self-revelation. And actually the second part carries the deepest meaning and the greatest significance. This flame of fire from the middle of a bush reveals God as the living God. You know, we talk about the burning bush, but the story tells us that the bush did no such thing. It was the flame that burned. There is no flame known to man that burns without fuel to feed on. Every flame needs a source of fuel. But not here. This flame had life in and of itself. And so God was showing himself to Moses, not simply as the living God, but as the God who has life in and of himself. Please notice that the third aspect of God's self-disclosure here is that the holy living God also showed himself not as distant and remote in his heaven somewhere, but as being here with us too, in the middle of a bush. Those are the three strands in this simple but dramatic visual revelation of God, his holiness, his life, and and his closeness or his, his indwelling. The first strand, the holiness of God, becomes the major emphasis of the whole revelation of God to his people through Moses and the first five books of the scriptures, the books of Moses. But the second, God's revealing of himself as the living God, was the most necessary aspect right there and then for Moses, bringing reassurance to a trembling servant. I am the living one, is going to be the basis on which God constantly assures his servant Moses. And then the third aspect, that of God as the indwelling God, the the God who comes right down into our situation, indeed right into our very selves. That's an astonishing foreshadowing of all that God intends to do later in his Son and by his Spirit. So let me restate it. In this incident of the bush, we have a three-fold revelation of God. The one who is holy, the one who is living, and the one who is with us or in us. So let's look together at how this works out in God's dealings with Moses. And if you want a, a heading for the first way, describes God's dealing with Moses here, it would be revelation. Because for Moses, indeed for any whom the Lord calls into the service of his kingdom, including ourselves, God's first provision is that of revelation, of of sharing, of impartation. Not showing us how to do the work he's called us to, nor, nor even explaining doctrinal truth. But what, rather through God's opening up to us of His very self. That's the basic need of all God's servants a first hand, person to person, heart relationship with the Lord, in which we are enabled to know Him personally and more fully. The second way that the Lord deals with Moses here. Is reassurance. You see, the Lord intimately knows who we are, what we are. He knows our weakness, He knows our lack of confidence. And notice how tenderly God deals with Moses, for the very next thing that the Lord does for Moses is precisely to bring him reassurance amid his fearfulness. Essentially, Moses feared for things. First of all, he feared inadequacy. Exodus chapter 3 verse 11, who am I that I should go? Moses felt inadequate. Actually, that's no bad thing in anyone seeking to do anything in the Lord's name. Then look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say? So secondly, Moses was afraid of ignorance, that when cross-examined, he wouldn't have an answer. He wouldn't know what to say. And then Moses states his third anxiety in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1. Moses answered, they won't believe me. He feared ineffectiveness. He dreaded that if he went to Egypt and said what God wanted him to say, he'd find that the Hebrews just wouldn't believe him or his words. He was afraid of being ineffective. And then in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, I don't normally go for alliteration, but the fourth of his worries is incoherence. Lord, I'm not... Eloquent. I just can't put two words together. Even if you tell me what to say, I'll mess up. I'm not a man of words, I'm incoherent. Four very real fears. And the Lord gives Moses four equally real reassurances. First of all, Moses feels inadequate. What's always God's answer to all of his inadequate servants? Look at it, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. But I will be with you. That's all we need to know. I will be with you. It won't take away our feeling inadequate. But it will enable us to live with it. You see, God wants our characters to mature, but he seldom changes our personalities. Just read the opening chapter of the book of Jeremiah, and you'll see what I mean. Not meaning to be flippant, but people could hardly hear a word of his prophecy for the noise of his teeth chattering nervously. And it never changed throughout his ministry. Yet God simply gave him the same promise. I'll be with you. You'll be all right, Jeremiah. I'm at your side. And Jeremiah learned he could live with his fear by relying on God, who'd promised his personal presence. And so it was for Moses. And so it is for us. And then, secondly, God met ignorance with teaching. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this, the Lord, the God of your fathers. Spelling it out, answering ignorance with teaching. And then thirdly, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1, Moses' dread of ineffectiveness is countered by God's gift of authority. He gives Moses signs that have the power to convince. And the purpose of these signs was to give authority and authenticity to a man whose words otherwise would not have been effective. Notice Exodus 4 and verse 21. The Lord expressly reminds Moses where this authority comes from. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles which I have put into your power. So Moses' fear of being ineffective is met by God's gift of authority and and signs following His words will carry authority, and the wonders will confirm them. And again, just as it was for Moses, so it is for us. We declare the Lord's inspired word, and he lends his authority, and his works of power follow in confirmation. And finally, Moses feared incoherence. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10. Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. And the Lord replied in verse 11. Who made man's mouth? God promises to be the one who would undertake for Moses. With a gentle reminder that he is our creator And our sustainer. Many years ago, there was a lady preacher who began her message by giving Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 as her text. She was reading from the authorised version, the King James Version, I am that I am. And in essence, her message was, you'll face many kinds of crisis in your life. And then she gave various examples of the difficulties that people might face. And then she said, I want to tell you that in whatever condition you find yourself, whatever need you feel, whatever it is that you think will meet your need, God will come to you and he will say, I am that I am. Now, Nothing could be further from the Hebrew or nearer the truth. That's exactly what God was revealing to Moses. Exactly, to a T. The Lord said to Moses, you've given me a list of four things, four problems, four crises that you're not going to be able to live through. Now look at me. Because I'm the answer to your four problems. And I will be with you. Okay, we've seen the Lord preparing the man who'd become his friend. With revelation. And then with reassurance. And if you want a heading for this third aspect, I would probably call it fatherly care. Because I want... Us to see the father's heart towards him. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 18 the Lord prepares his servant for the coming conflict with his fatherly care. There's a lovely picture in Exodus chapter 4 of how God broods over Moses. Moses goes to his father in law and asks his permission to go back to Egypt which Jethro gives him. Then in verse 19, the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. You see, the Lord didn't leave him to his own devices to work out what he was supposed to do. He came to prompt him into the way of obedience. And then again in verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles. The Lord is carefully looking after Moses. He's sending him on his business, and at every point, the Lord broods over him and prompts him. But I wonder if you've ever noticed that in Exodus chapter 4, there's a curious incident where the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. Actually, it's not just curious, it's fascinating and as you read it, contrary to first impressions, it's an incident which demonstrates the tender love between Moses and his wife Zipporah. And her name, incidentally, translates as Ladybird. This incident has been misunderstood for years because of an unfortunate translation in the King James Version of Exodus chapter 4 and verse 25. Surely a bloody husband hast thou been unto me. Generations of preachers jumped to the conclusion, if you'll forgive my French, that what she meant was a be-awful husband. Behind this odd event is the fact that Moses was rashly, unpreparedly setting off to do the Lord's work. He was off to teach others God's ways, but he hadn't obeyed God in his own home. And as we saw with Abraham, the key to friendship with God is obedience. But Moses had been disobedient in that a son had been born to him, and that son had remained uncircumcised. So when, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 24, God tackled him about this, The Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Zipporah was given revelation as to Moses' offense. And so she circumcised the child. And what she did in touching Moses' feet with the blood of circumcision was to identify Moses with her action. Now. It was as though Moses himself had performed his parental duty according to the will of God. And when she identified Moses with this circumcision, the Lord backed off. Because Moses was then back on the consecrated way of obedience and friendship with God. And when Zipporah saw her husband get better, she said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I nearly lost you, but now the blood of circumcision has given me my husband back. How is it that I can present this as part of God's fatherly caring for Moses? Well, he'd be a poor father if he didn't rebuke us. He'd be a poor father if he didn't stop us on the way of destruction and bring us back into the way of life. Then, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 27, the Lord fathers Moses with anticipatory provinces. Moses was plodding his weary way back to Egypt and puzzling to himself, how on earth am I going to find Aaron? I've no idea where the family live. I don't know where to start looking for them. I don't even know if I'll recognize him after all of these years. He was talking himself into a state of depression. Oh, it's going to be like trying to find a needle in a haystack in that densely populated area of Goshen. I've no idea how to go about this task. Whatever shall I do? And I don't ask anyone because if rumor gets back that uh, gets out that I'm back, then I'm going to be in trouble before I even get started. And as he pondered about how on earth he was going to get, started, walking steadily but disconsolately towards all that God had asked him to do. He saw a figure in the distance, and as their paths met, Moses saw that it was Aaron, prompted by God to come out and head towards Midian. What a thrill it must have been to Moses. What an encouragement to see how God cares for him. And encourages him by his providence. You see, God had been working in the land of Egypt long before Moses got there. He'd been preparing the way. And Moses, already advanced in years, was about to embark upon his life's work. And it was certainly no afterthought on God's part. We've only mentioned it briefly in passing thus far. But God was remembering covenant and providing the Hebrews with the man who would be the deliverer. You know, today when we use the word provide, we focus on on the supplying something aspect of it. And sure, that's included, but the fundamental meaning of provide is to see ahead. Thus, Providence in the Bible is essentially the foreseeing of a need coupled with the supply of what is needed. And often that's in advance of it even becoming necessary. And God willing, we'll look at this further next time. In the Old Testament, only Abraham and Moses were specifically called friends of God. However, In John 15 and verse 15, Jesus told us that he no longer calls us servants but friends, provided we observe all that he has commanded. And my dear ones, if you take nothing else from this morning, please be heartened, be reassured, be inspired, be emboldened as you see what encouragement What tender fatherly care, what complete provision the Lord lavishes on his friends. I believe that in these days, the Lord is calling his people, ourselves included, to new obedience in the whole area of our mission to the folk around us. But what confidence we can go with having seen just some of what he does for, with, and in his friends. And next time, God willing, we'll see just how tenderly he deals with us, even when we totally blow it. Hallelujah! What a God! we serve.